I'd like you to open your Bibles to Psalms 101. We'll continue with our subject of the Christian home. The Christian home. It's one of those subjects that needs to be taught periodically every so many years. You should teach on this. I was impressed the other morning while I was eating breakfast and preparing for the day, reading in the Sermon on the Mount right now. The thought came to me, if all I did as a preacher for the rest of my life was just teach those three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's all I did, it would be enough. It would be enough. And there's so much there. Well, the Christian home is a lot like that too. Not because we haven't heard things about our roles and our behavior at home and what the home represents and what it's supposed to be. The Bible has a lot to say about it. It's not because we haven't heard those kind of things. It's just that when we hear it, there was early on, we got a lot of conviction. We tried hard. We heard it again. And well, you know, we're doing all right. And you hear it again. And then, yeah, well, I've heard that. And our children have grown up in that space of time. And they have listened to what we're saying now more than what we first said because they weren't here then. They're watching us as we grow older in the Lord and they don't hear us talk about spiritual things as much as we used to. And yet the home is a training center. Many people have complained that the church doesn't have something for the children. And I think I said Sunday, the church has parents. And that's always for the children. And the church's responsibility is not to train anybody's children or to have special things only for children rather than meeting together with their parents in the assembly. It's not the role of the church to babysit or to have things like that. If the young people want to get together with their own age group and do things, we do that. There's no problem with that. But the church's responsibility is to teach what a parent should do, to teach how we conduct our affairs at home. Verse two here in Psalm 101, at the end of that verse, it says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. If you can do that, your children will notice that. Your neighbor will notice that. Your parents, your friends, everybody around, even your brothers and sisters in the Lord will know that because the home is where you prove yourself. The home is the most difficult place to prove your Christianity, but that's where God wants us to prove it first. We just finished talking about fathers, and it says clearly that one of the duties of a father is to teach. He's with his children. When he is with them, he has to work during the day, and he can't take them, obviously, but his duty is to teach his children, to point things out as they go through life, as they sit in a house and discuss things and talk about things, and very, very few Christian fathers actually do that. Some do, but not very many, not very many. And we have sort of abdicated our role and just let things slide. I think hoping that if we go to church, that they'll get all the information they need from the preacher or from somebody else rather than a father. And yet the one that they most look up to is not the preacher, but dad or mom in the home. And that's the one that should have the most influence. But if you can walk in your house with a perfect heart, you not only have sincerely put your hands on the plow that God has before you, but you are sincerely walking with diligence the way you should walk. Because if you can do it at home, you can do it in church. Last week, we began in this study talking about the role of the wife or the woman. 
And it's not a surprise, it's not even a shock today to read what the scripture says the primary role or the main role of a woman is in this world and in this life, and it's to assist her husband. And how outdated, I suppose, is that? She's to support her husband and to assist him. The Bible says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, 34, that a wife in this world, a girl who was married in this world has a husband, her primary duty is how she may please her husband, not how much money she can make, not how many adventures she can have in life doing this and doing that, going there, being famous and applauded. Her primary duty is to please her husband. What if I were to say, if you really don't want to do that as a young lady, you should never marry because God will hold you to this. Anything else breeds disunity and disunity leaves the grace of God out of your home. A home without grace is a home without favor. When you have a home that is favored by the Lord, that home is blessed. The inhabitants of the home are blessed. We also said last week about this in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 9, that the woman was created for the man. Her primary reason for being created was for the man. Adam needed a helpmate. But again, that is viewed with scorn and contempt. You get angry women who listen to those kind of things because they just see that as a put down or you're a male chauvinist and you're against women. People have said through the years and in commentaries, well, Paul here was probably thinking about this. You know, God used Paul, but all scripture is penned by the Holy Spirit. It's not Paul and what he thought, it's God and what he thought. He simply used Paul to write these things. And when women don't want to fit in their role, when they don't want to submit to what God has given them to do in a home, those women bring disunity and disharmony into the home. You say, well, what about the men? We talked about the men and they have their faults too. But he says primarily to a woman, her role in life, if she's married, is to assist her husband because that's who she was created for. We mentioned this, the qualities, we mentioned the word virtuous, we'll get to it again in a minute. But the qualities of the kind of woman that God wants is one, she is teachable. She wants to learn. She can measure herself and how far she wants to go in the Christian life by how she responds to the word of God. Especially if a girl has grown up being an outgoing, adventurous, aggressive lady, young lady, winning awards and being noted and everything, and then she gets married to subscribe to what God says she should do and to be is almost like, I can't do that. They do it anyway because you know, marriage is what most people do. But she has to be teachable. You can't flinch and you can't groan when you hear the things like submit to your husbands. You can't take that to be a put down. God doesn't do that. But submission is such an important role that if a woman doesn't do it, the man cannot be the head of his house. If he's not the head of his house, he's disqualified from leadership. He will not produce godly seed because he can't. Neither one of them can. Because godly seed is a result of the influence of God. You may raise kids. You may take them to church. They may be sweet acting and all of that, but they're not serving the Lord. They're serving themselves because their parents did. So it is important for a woman not to flinch and not to be troubled, but to be a teachable person to sit here and to say, I want to be the kind of woman that God wants me to be. 
I want to be the kind of woman that brings grace to my house. I want to be the kind of woman that even if my husband does not obey the Lord, my children will still be sanctified or set apart unto God because of my willingness to follow him and do things his way. The second thing we said, she must be gentle. She must be gentle and quiet. First Peter chapter three. A meek and a quiet spirit is a great value in the sight of God. It's easy to keep talking about examples of all of this, but a woman wasn't made to be a noisy, clamorous, yapping woman. The Bible says things in the Proverbs about a woman who's boisterous, and she's like rain dripping on the roof. It doesn't say it boisterous, does it? But a boisterous, loud, in-your-face I'm my own. You know, a woman like that creates havoc in a home. Now, she got married because probably they didn't know anything about the Bible when they got married, and after they were married and your ways get set in the home, it's hard to change them. They can be changed to be sure, but if you have to have a heart for the Lord, change. And the third thing we said was that she has to be modest in her appearance. She should not be a flirtatious, excessively dressed, cool-looking babe. That's not what God wants a godly woman to be. The kind of woman that God wants is modest in her apparel, in the way she dresses herself, the way she appears to other people. All those kind of things that keep people from seeing her as maybe a score because there's so much of that going on today. But she resists that, she fights that, she's loyal, she's faithful to her husband, and she has this modest appearance. And fourthly, I said, she's submissive to her husband. She's submissive to her husband as unto the Lord. Now, in studying the word submission this week, looking over some old notes, and I thought, you know, we need to go over this a little bit more. Before we go into the virtuous woman, Proverbs 31, 10 and following part of Scripture, we need to just make sure that all of us in this room, all of us in this assembly understand what God meant and what God means by submission. Let me give you a definition from Strong's Greek Dictionary. The word submission simply means subordinate. The Greek word submission, hupotasso, is a military term. It means to rank under. It doesn't mean you're inferior because there's a lot of men who maybe just be recruits or, or whatever the lower ranks are that are far superior physically and maybe mentally to many officers. It has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. It's just recognizing that I am right here. I am not there. The officer is there and I am here. And by law, I must submit to him and he's the boss and I'm not. That's what the word hupotasso would mean in military terms. So Strong defines the word as subordinate. Thayer, in his dictionary, means to arrange under. To arrange under or to subject oneself to obey or to be subject to. And in another dictionary called the word study, it means to place in order, to be in your place. <laughs> that sounds good, that about women, be in your place. But again, a biblical woman, a godly woman, recognizes her place. She's not seeking the man's place. She doesn't want to wear the pants in the house. She wants to be where God puts her. So she, being teachable, finds out what that place is, and she endeavors to do that with all of her heart. The English dictionary 
probably gives the best definition for us to understand what submission means. It means to yield oneself to the authority or the will of another. To yield yourself to the authority of or the will of another person. Now, women submitting to their husband does not mean that they submit to sin, does not mean that they submit to error. There is a time or a place where you draw the line. If your husband says, I want you to do this or that, that you cannot do it. If he told you on the phone to tell somebody he wasn't home, you can't lie because to lie would be a sin against God. You never put anybody before God. But to submit to your husband means that you fit in with his plans. It would be easy to submit to a loving and thoughtful man. A gentle, kind, loving, and thoughtful man who just loves you to peace. Wouldn't it be easy to submit to that? And yet the one you married wasn't like that. Now, he can be. He can be. It all depends on his will and how badly he wants to be a godly man. But he could be, and he certainly can be. But he wasn't when you married him. But he would be. Now, tonight, there's two attitudes that go with submission. Biblical submission has two main primary attitudes that must be in place, or submission will be only a word and not a reality. Two things that submission, biblical submission, must have, and one is humility, to be humble. There has to be a lowering of yourself to God. There must be a recognition of God's authority, that he is altogether God and has a right to your life, has a right to your time, and has a right to your energy. He has that right because he bought you with a price. The price he paid for you was his shed blood on the cross. He did not have to save you. He could have left you in your sins and bypassed you and saved everybody else in the world. He's under no obligation to save anybody. But he made it possible for men to be saved. And then he made the choice. He said, you did not choose me. I chose you. Doesn't the Bible say that in John 15? Yeah, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't love me first. I loved you. You couldn't respond to me until I first let you respond to me. God is totally God. God is fully sovereign in total control of all this earth. Everything submits to him because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. God is altogether supreme. Anything that we have which is attached to God is because God invited us to have it. Now that doesn't mean that because God called you out of the miry clay doesn't mean that you automatically become godly or holy because if there is a life you have to live, there are choices you have to make. You must seek to enter in. Remember Jesus said, pray that you'll be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Labor to enter into that rest that God has for you. You got to do that. That doesn't mean it automatically happens because you go to church or you got blessed one night or anything else. But you must be humble. There must be a bowing of your head, your life, and your heart to the Lordship of Jesus. Again, I'm not talking over our heads tonight. We've probably heard this several times, but I don't know how much it really has got a hold of us. 
But humility, first and foremost, requires that you bow your heads to God. It's a bowing of oneself. It's a recognition of who God is and letting him be that in your life and not resisting it and not fighting it. Humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Remember we said Micah 6, 8 last week, the verse, the Lord has showed thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk without controversy with God. Now, wait a minute, that's not right. You just simply say God is right. And if he said it, it's so. If he said he'll do it, then I better line up with that. If he said judgment's coming, then I pray that I won't be. Because he is God. The attitude that brings anybody to a loving, saving, fruitful, gracious relationship with God is humility. And the Bible has a lot to say about humility. But I do want you to look at two passages. One's in Philippians chapter 2, and the other one is in 1 Peter 5. Let's look in Philippians 2 first. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, that's humility, let each esteem others better than themselves. I would have to say you're really willing to do this, you are really willing to get along with whoever God puts in your company. To do this, you look down your nose at nobody. You don't put yourself above anybody to be compared to by somebody. But in lowliness of mind, you bow your hearts before the Lord and you esteem others as better than themselves. Verse four, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, that's not covetousness or greed, but it's on the needs of other people, the well-being of other people. Be concerned about how others are doing. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In a spiritual sense, in the same way, that's what we must also do. That's how you die to self. The death of yourself begins with an attitude of humbling yourself to God, recognizing what's between you and the Lord, and being willing to crucify it, because if you don't, God will judge you. He has to judge sin, or chastise you, whatever you want to call that. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 5 and 6, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject, that's the word submission, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. Because if you're not, you won't do that. We'll still gripe about people. We'll still complain about people. We'll still be embittered about people. We'll still be probably in competition with others in the church. A competitive spirit is anything but humble. Amen. Don't shout me down, all right? So he said, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud 
and giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, because of this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due season. That's the grace part. Humbling yourself before God. Truly, not just trying some exercise, but truly humbling yourself before God and letting God be God in your life. While you may walk through some times of testing, God will exalt you in due season. And he will exalt you not because you're wanting to be exalted, but God will make sure that your righteousness shines like the sun, that others will be able to take note that you do walk with the Lord, that you have been with God. Humility. It's just the very opposite of what you see today, all this cocky attitude, all of this holier-than-thou stuff you see a lot of in the church, all of this pride of who I am and what I can do and all the promotion of self in this world. It just means that there's no humility. That man has replaced God as who he serves. He serves himself. He seeks what he wants. He hopes God understands, and he tries to add religion to the package. But he, in the forefront of his life, sitting on the throne of his heart, is promoting himself. He's proud. And yet the Bible says a proud man knows nothing. All of the things that propel him, all the knowledge of what he thinks, he knows nothing. Yet it's the humble man that God said he would bless. The second thing that has to go with this, of course, is love. Love. If a man does not love, if his love for God, if a man does not love, he cannot serve the Lord. Now love, as I've tried to say so many times, and I believe it's accurate, in the essence of love is commitment. The essence of it what it boils down to that gives great meaning to love is commitment. Love is not based on who deserves it other than us to God because God loved us when we were what? Sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made a commitment many, many eons ago to your well-being, a day that you would be born a day in your life that he would visit you, a day that he would exercise his sovereignty upon you and cause you to grieve over your sins and then save you, a day that God would open your eyes and heart and show you things you've never seen before. God committed himself to us so that we can become what he wants because if he doesn't do this, we can't. We absolutely cannot. And God who loves us and cares about us so loved the world that he did what he gave. He gave the best he could. He gave himself. He gave his only begotten son. And then promised that whoever believes in him will never perish, but you'll have everlasting life. That's a love that is not definable to me. The love that passes understanding. It's like Peace that passes understand. Well, peace is a result of love. And love is such a large subject that without love, nothing has any value to God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, you remember the verse in 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about if you have faith to move mountains? 
If I have faith to do this and faith to do that, he said, if I have faith to move mountains and have all knowledge and all these things that people attribute deep spirituality to, he said, if I have all of that and have not love, I'm nothing. That's what he said. I am nothing. Actually, I'm going to read that for you. Although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries. Wow. And all knowledge. Wow. And though I have all faith, all the degree of it you could have, so that I could remove mountains if I have not charity or love, what does he say? I'm nothing. Can you imagine today what the average religious member of an institutional church would think if you said that? about all your accomplishments and all your pursuits and all the great marvelous things you've done and the thousands here and the thousands there and, and look at all these things. And Jesus said, if you have not love, it's nothing. Didn't he say somewhere in the book of Luke, he said, when you have done all these things, you should say I'm an unprofitable servant? Because you have only done what he equipped you and anointed you to do. And if God had not equipped you or anointed you to do the things, these marvelous things that you do, if he had not anointed you to do that, you could not have done it. And without his anointing, you'd still be sitting in a bar. And so when he does what he does and the marvelous way that he does it, and then he puts you places and his anointing is upon you, that's the work of God. He used you, but it's God doing the work. Jesus said, it's the Father that doeth the works. He does that, and he is able to do all of that, again, because he is God. This is the truth. We don't mention this enough in Christianity. If my life and my following after God is not because of my love for him, it's for nothing. Didn't he say something about all faith? Didn't he say something about if I have all faith? Did your Bible say that? All faith so that I could move mountains, he said, and have not love? I'm nothing. He said, I am nothing. I'm nothing. Well, does that mean that the motivation for me wanting to be healed is because God wants to heal me? I mean, if he didn't want me healed, he wouldn't have said that. Did he not say, I'm the Lord that heals you? Is it not a desire to please God that you want to use your faith? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to get this. The reason God gave us these promises is not so you feel better, but he gives you a reason to seek him and trust him. And the right reason for seeking and trusting him is because you want to please him. You are committed to him having his way. Are you with me? I want God to have his way in my life. Therefore, I find out what he says in this book, and then it becomes my desire to have that because this is what 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises are in him. Yes and amen. What for? What's the purpose of these promises? Unto the glory of God. Well, we write books about how much faith we have and how tough we are. Some of us, you know, are noted for, oh, he's got such great faith. 
we should take as much note about our holiness. But then if we were that holy, they wouldn't want to be around us anyway. We'd speak only about the Lord and his way and his word. We'd witness everybody we came to. That's why we're on this earth. But anyway, he said the purpose of these promises is to glorify God. And we're talking about women here in just a minute, all right? But before we get to that, we're back to this point about submission. You've got to have an attitude of humility and commitment to God. It's got to be there or else you're going to find yourself trying to get things from God, trying to get this and trying to get that, get out of debt, get your bills paid, get your body well, get you this and get you that. So you can say, it took 35 years, but I got her. Now, the whole purpose of God's promises is to bring your faith into his arena where you use it, it's tested, and then it comes to pass in such a way that with a bowed head, God is glorified. We'll give the glory to Jesus and tell of his wondrous works. That's why we're supposed to love God. In the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and verse 4, Paul writes, he said, it's not being a Jew or being a Gentile that matters. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision or the sign of a covenant. He said, that's not what's important. What really matters at the end of verse 6 is what? Faith that worketh how? All right, put it like this here. Faith which works because you are committed to pleasing God by obtaining his promises. Does not God say it is his good pleasure to give you things? Did he not send the Holy Spirit to show us all the things that are ours? Does not our faith come by hearing and hearing by the word? Does not God show you things that he will give you? But the way you get anything is faith. You've got to have that. But faith that works any other way than loving God and wanting to please God. I'll tell you now, I do want to be well. I want to prosper. I want to do well. I want to do whatever I've got to do as long as I live so God will be blessed. I want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to be in a crowd that says, but Lord, we prophesied in 1 Corinthians 13 too. Lord, we prophesied in thy name. Lord, we did great miracles. And Lord, I was a great teacher in your church. And to hear him say, I never knew you. You got what you wanted, but you didn't get it because I wanted it. You sought your own way. You learned how to preach sermons. You learn how to manipulate people. You learn how to take advantage of people and play on the emotions. And, and you learn how to do all of these things. And you got what you want. You got a lot of money. You got famous. But in the end, you got nothing. Because your love was not for God. It's for yourself. You got it because you wanted it, not because you just want him. Lord, make me like change better than that. Make me like a $100 bill in your hand. Go buy yourself something. Use me to get it. Are we over everybody's head with this? Does it register? We're not here to be great. We're here for the very opposite, that we're here just to be servants. Romans 6, 16 says, to whomever you yield yourself as a servant, that what you yield yourself to is your Lord, whether the world unto death or sin unto death or God unto righteousness. 
And the world tells you to seek your own, go your way. Two married people get together and they both got all these adventurous, worldly ideas about how to have the perfect marriage and they go off on these tangents and within three months they're fighting and they're arguing, they disagree with each other, they can't get along with each other and then they quit. God wasn't glorified in that. Attitudes were all out of whack. She refused to recognize him. He didn't deserve it. He's less than he ought to be. And I can't submit to that. He didn't really care about what she thought. She, he didn't, you know, I don't care. She just thinks that she's a big spender. Blah, blah, blah. They wind up really disliking each other. But a godly woman, especially those of you that aren't married yet, you better make sure your heart is right that when you enter into marriage, I believe God will put you in a marriage if you get everything right because he can use you to have himself a place where he can rear godly seed. You want to make sure that I am willing as a Christian woman to be the kind of woman that God wants. Now, I want him to show me, so I'm going to read this book and stay with it because I want God to have his way. We love God because he first loved us. Remember that? We are committed to God because he was first committed to us. God said, I hold you in the palm of my hand. Is that commitment? God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake. Is that commitment? God says, I'm the good shepherd. I'll lead you. No man will take you away from me. Is that commitment? He's already made that decision. Now, all of this funneled back into where we started, you get this picture of the kind of work that God will do, in this case, a woman's heart, so that when she comes forth, she comes forth as a virtuous woman the very thing that any young man really wants in his life. Because as Proverbs 31 says, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. All the days of her life, she will do him good and not evil. Now, again, concerning submission, go back to 1 Peter 3. Concerning submission, this word which comes with attitude, Towards God. First Peter chapter three, the first six verses. Back to the wives now. Wives, be in subjection, that word means submit, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the behavior of or the conversation of the wives, not talking, but it's behavior here. While they behold your chaste conversation, your manner of life, coupled with your reverence for God, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. Now that doesn't mean those things are wrong, especially because of the part that says putting on of apparel. I want to point that out. It's not wrong to put on apparel. It's not wrong to wear clothes. It just means that behind what you wear is the thoughtfulness of what would please God. Verse 4, let it be that hidden man of the heart. Let it be that hidden man of the heart. He's talking to a woman. Let it be that hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible 
even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husband, even as Sarah obeyed, whoa, what a word, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. As long as you do well, the daughters of Sarah. That's one place it talks about submission, and it seems like it's pretty lofty because it seems so outdated. There's so little of it. Nobody talks about it, and the people that do try to explain it away so that it doesn't mean what it said. But it does mean what it said. Otherwise, God wouldn't have said it so clear and so plain as he said it here. Go back to the left of the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as it is fit in the Lord. In other words, as God would have you to do it. Now remember, submission is a willingness to submit yourself to the will and the authority of another. In this case, your own husband. This is what God in verse 18 wants. Keep going to the right, to the book of Titus. Just three or four little books to the right. Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. About... Women, he says, they are to be discreet, keepers at home. What was that one lady in the Congress that said she's been promoted from the kitchen to the Congress? I would to God. I quit talking about politics. Let's go back to verse 5 again. To be discreet, keepers at home, good. Notice, obedient. The word obedient is the same word as submit. Obedient to their own Husbands, here's why, that the word of God be not blasphemed. How is the word of God blasphemed? Well, there's people who say things like, yeah, they talk a good game down at the church, but you ought to hear them whenever they're alone. Boy, they just holler and yap and, oh, yeah, he, he goes through all, oh, yeah, she's this and that, but boy, she can't keep her mouth shut. I hear stuff like this. I've been hearing stuff like this for 30 years. Oh, yeah, they do all the other, you know, they have tongues talking, whoo, and all that kind of stuff, but whoo can't get along with them. Listen, that's not what the word of God is doing in anybody. Are you here? That's not the work of God in anybody's life. And anybody that does that causes people essentially to rail against your religion. We've heard stories about sneaking deacons down at that big holier than thou church. That's called blasphemy or blaspheming or speaking evil against. Our light should so shine before the world that others would see our good works and do what? Matthew 5, and glorify the Lord. We're like little cities set on a hill. We have a mission in this life. It's to majorly glorify God. Not ourselves, not a church, not a group, not an accomplishment, but Jesus Christ. Nothing else is important outside of him. Nothing. And we're supposed to submit to our husbands, if you're a wife, as unto the Lord. Now, the main verse I've been waiting for, and I'm finally get there, is in Ephesians 5. Keep going to the left, to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5 and verse 22, it says about the same thing as Colossians 3.18 says. And it simply says, wives, submit yourselves 
unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Wives, submit yourself unto your husbands in the sense that you are in submission to the Lord. Are we on the same page? Wives, show your devotion and your willingness to be faithful to God by submitting yourself to your husband, which is the will of God for you. It doesn't say anything about him deserving it, him being the kind of man that's easy to submit to. You married him. You married him. And so your obligation is to represent to your husband the kind of woman you are before God. Your heart before God will be revealed in the way you deal with your husband. If you're argumentative and you're mouthy and you're always pointing out his faults, talking about blah, 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 then something is wrong between you and your relationship with God. Amen. Now, let me read it to you in my favorite translation of this verse. I don't endorse this translation, just this one verse. In the Amplified Bible that some people have said in years gone by, you probably haven't read this verse But in years gone by, somebody said, whoever wrote that book? Amplified Bible is not really a Bible. It simply amplifies, adds words to give the meaning of what they think the verse says, so they amplify it. It's not valid for theology or doctrine. But you can learn more about a verse in some ways by reading how it's amplified. Sometimes the meaning comes out good, and sometimes it may not. In this case, listen to this, and you be the judge. Wives, be subject, be submissive, and adapt yourselves to your own husband as a service unto the Lord. Does that mean that a woman who submits to her husband does it as a service to the Lord? Say amen. Amen. All right. And verse 33 says, let the wife see that she respects and reverence her husband. And then it lists these things. Now, get this, that she, one, notices him, two, regards him, three, honors him, four, prefers him, five, venerates and esteems him, six, and that she defers to him, seven, praises him, eight, and loves and admires him exceedingly. Hallelujah. That's my kind of preaching right there. Now, that's not what the King James Bible says, but this is what those words mean. I would agree with this. This is the kind of meaning that comes out of this. Let me just list them again, okay? I know you like this. See that she respect and reverence her husband. That is, that she, one, notices him. Notices him. What do you think that means? That she's got her eyes on him? That doesn't mean she walks around town and says, I see you, I see you. No, it doesn't mean anything goofy like that. It just means that she just notices him. After all, after all, her goal in life is to fit in with him. Not the preacher, not the neighbor next door, not some spiritual man in the church, but that man she married. So she pays attention to him. She watches him. She doesn't stare at him all the time. He wouldn't like that. But she notices him. Second thing I mentioned here was regards him. She pays attention to what he says. 
She regards his views. She listens to him. She gives thought and mind to what he's about, where he's headed, what she's doing. After all, one of her goals in adapting herself to him would be to pray for him. It'd be hard to say a woman is praying for her husband if she's always critical of him, wouldn't it? She's paying attention, regarding him. That's who she fits in with. Third thing I mentioned in this little list was she honors him. She doesn't talk against her husband or about her husband in public. She doesn't interrupt his conversation and say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You never get the story right. Let me tell it right. She doesn't do that. That would be dishonoring her husband. She's not always correcting him. She's not always telling him all of his faults. Why do you do that? You ought to know better than that. We go to church every week and you still, what's wrong with you? That's not honor. That just makes a man recall. Some men maybe quit, I don't know. But she honors him. For she prefers him. She puts him first. She's going to go out with a girl. She wants to make sure it's all right with him. Remember when we were in Jackson Hole and we took a ski lift when we were out on our little vacation a couple weeks ago? At Jackson Hole, big ski resort there. What a peaceful little 15-minute journey up to the top of this ski place. A dreadful-looking place, but we went up there and... We got off. We were up there looking at all the scenery. It's just absolutely marvelous and beautiful country. Just beautiful. They take a picture of you coming up the slope. As you're coming up there, you know, you're riding there. There's a camera that takes a picture. A smile. Then they want 13 bucks for it and other little pictures when you get there. So, anyway, Bonnie and Carolyn were walking over there by the picture seller. And the lady there said, you like to see your pictures? And so they said, yeah, yeah, I like to see them. So they saw me and Bonnie, and they saw Mike and Carolyn. And the lady said, would you like to buy the package? They said, well, we'll have to talk to our husbands. And I'm putting this in my own words because I don't always get the story exactly right. I just remember how it ends and how it started. But the whole conversation had to do with ask your husband. And I think they finally said, do you have to ask your husbands if you can buy something? And I think Carolyn said, well, yes. And the lady said, you all must be from the South. <laughs> Isn't that what she said? You must be from the South. I guess that was a put down. I guess that meant some kind of inferiority, you know, where we don't know how to act, pick our nose in public or whatever they think that <laughs> Southerners do. I don't know. It's okay for a woman, she's going to spend... 18 bucks to say, is it okay with you if we buy these pictures? And it should be okay with her if he says, no, we don't need those pictures. That's, you know, she didn't have to say, huh? And she didn't have to do that. She simply says, okay. He doesn't have to fight her. He's not in competition with her as to who's the most spiritual. He doesn't have to come home to some spiritual giant always correcting your language or your verses that you quoted Sunday or tried to quote. He doesn't have to dread seeing her when he comes home, knowing that she might have a bad attitude or something. He didn't marry that. That's not what God is doing in his wife. He's making her everything that makes him really glad that I'm her husband. I don't deserve a woman this good, but I've certainly got one, and may God help me to be the kind of man that reciprocates with her, that gives back to her what she's given to me so that maybe we can come to the end of our life trying to outdo each other with love. That's okay. 
because your kids will notice that and everybody else will too. God wants it to be that way. She venerates and esteems him. It's like her saying that he's mine and I'm his and I am so glad. I am blessed with a good man or I'm blessed with a good woman. In this case, we're talking about women. And that she defers to him. She's willing to say whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do. As he grows older, he begins to realize that he needs to be more sensitive to his wife. He quits making demands on her when he should not. He begins to be more noticeable of her needs, and he tries to help her needs instead of being selfish. God does this kind of work, but usually starts with a woman and does it in her. Then he sees it, and then he begins to work on his side. And the two people begin to flow, and they begin to be one because they're living together in the same way towards each other. God is affecting both. But it usually starts, as I said last week, it usually starts with a woman because it seems like it's easier for her to change than it is him. Then she praises him, this translation said, and she praises him. She gives him compliments. She lets him know that not only has she noticed him, but she appreciates the way he did things or says things, or that was really good. Whatever she says about him as being her husband, and in that way she loves and admires him exceedingly. It would be easy for a man to respond to a woman that's trying that hard to be like that. Maybe some of you women are, maybe it's quite that perfect yet, but you know what? God can do an absolutely perfect work in your life so that you can walk on your house with a perfect heart because he said you can. At least we're on the right road to get there. This kind of teaching on this subject is not being left out of our church life. We're not afraid to labor on this subject because it's so important because it will determine in a home whether or not the grace of God comes there and abides there. It really will be the determining factor. And if a woman doesn't want to submit to her husband, she's fed up with this or tired of that. And I know a man can be really out of whack, but just remember, you married him. God's supposed to change us all, but if if he doesn't change him, what do you do? Let him change you. Keep yourself right. Keep yourself right. Whether he ever is or not, you said you would, you do your job. And again, I can speak for a lot of you men that we get a lot of good treatment that we don't deserve. Amen. My brother once said, you overmarried. And I said, I probably did. But he ain't done with her yet either, but he's doing a good job. He's doing a good job. A woman who submits to her husband like this is going to stop any jealousy in this man's life. He's going to rule out any suspicion in this man because, you see, every man wants to compliment the blessing of his wife. I listen to one person more than anybody else, one living being more than anybody else, and that's my wife. I'm around her more than I am anybody else. We don't sit around talking all day long. We don't just say, we don't do that. But I'm around her more than anybody else. And I think that a lot of men who are insecure about how their wives really feel about them, men do want approval from their wives. My brother and I, years ago, this was back in the 60s, maybe the late 50s. How long ago was that? 
we wanted to go out and shoot his gun. He had some guns. We were going to take a couple of them out and go out in the country and shoot them. But he knew that his wife, if she saw him coming out of the house carrying a gun, she would start that chin music. Or a ratchet jaw, whatever, you know, you get all of this clamor. So knowing that she would do that because that's the pattern of her behavior, he would stick the gun down in his pants leg and put his jacket over And I know how that feels because I've stuck one down my leg too, see. <laughs> now, whenever you walk out of here, you know, just be real slow. And we'll just start acting like we're talking about something. We'll just, hey, uh, we're going to go uptown a while, me and my brother, okay? And so, what's it over there? You know, you got the door. <laughs> Take that gun out of your pants leg and... Girls, a man should never have to feel that his wife is so against him that she would be embittered against him because he does that. If you don't like what he does, just, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Pray. Rose up in the house with a new boat. Two new reels. A rod. So she goes outside, both hands on her hips. That always means that, is that the boiling point? 212, she's 212 on the porch. Got both hands on her hips. Anytime a woman has both hands on her hips, stand on one leg, she's mad. Where'd you get that thing? What are you going to do with that? We can't afford that. Take it back. Yes, ma'am. Or uh-uh. We one the two. What if a man knew that every time he came home, he had to fight his wife? He'd stay out late, wouldn't he? What if every time he came home, he had to hear her griping, complaining, and being belligerent about something? Would that sort of suppress any tenderness he had towards her? Oh, they may sleep together and have sex together, but that's not tenderness. There's nothing there that warms the heart. It's just a physical thing. It doesn't draw any kind of emotion into one unit. It doesn't do that. A man should never have to feel like that everything he does is viewed with suspicion by his wife, and she doesn't agree with that, and she's against what he's doing. I watched my dad be like that. My mother was always telling him things he couldn't do. And I remember as a child, I remember thinking, boy, if I ever get married, I probably won't. But if I ever do, I ain't put up with that. And then I got married. So here we go. But anyway, I'm glad some of us don't have to be married to a spiritual woman. That is, every time you come home, she always knows more than you do, and she does all the praying with the kids. Well, you don't know how. You're not quite there yet, and so she takes over. The house is out of order. This woman I've just designed, which none of you are, she has brought disharmony and disunity in the home, and displeasure to God comes in the home, for she doesn't submit herself to God. She submits herself to herself. She views herself as the one who needs to take over. He's not spiritual enough. She's the one who should be balancing the checkbook and maybe giving him an allowance because that's the kind of woman she is. And she's been allowed to become like that because maybe the church they were in never talked about this subject, never mentioned this subject because of the controversy that goes with it. In the average American church today, if you talk about wives, submit yourself to your husband, you'd be fired in about six hours. There'd be so much clamor. The gall of that preacher saying, we got to submit to our husband. That was the dark ages. This is a new age. It is a new age. It's a time of great judgment too. 
Well, I'm going to close. I want to mention these things, and I'll pick this up next time from here. We talk about submission. We're not just talking about wives to their husbands. Don't forget, there is submission to the government. In Romans 13, 1 Peter, there is submission to God. There is submission to one another. And there's also submission in the church to the ministry. There's a lot in the Bible about each of those things. We as Christians must, again, back to humility and love, not only women with their husbands, but us to God. To do it God's way. To submit ourselves to each other. Submit ourselves to the government, even to the point of going to jail for our convictions. It's all in the Bible, but we're majoring on wives, submit yourself to your own husband because that's the key. That will be the key in the marriage. If she will do that, she can turn his life around. She can turn him around if she will do that. You know where it says that? I'm going to show you in the Bible where if she will submit to God, she can turn his life around. Or God will use her to turn his life around. We've only been there once. Go back again, 1 Peter 3. And verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husband, that if any obey not the word. I would say something like being lost there, unregenerate. Could we agree to that? Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the behavior of the wives. Does that mean that? then he's supposed to be the head of his house and he's not. That doesn't mean you should be the head of his house. It means that you, by submitting to him and living the kind of life that you should live, the moral, chaste, virtuous, honest, firm example of a life to him before God, it means that God will convict him and bring him around to where he will become the head of his house because his wife was willing to put God first. Wives, be in subjection to your own husband, so that if any obey not the word, they may without a word be won by the conversation while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Don't tell me the woman isn't a key. She is a key. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, if you men will submit yourself to the Lord, I'll save your wives. But it does say, if you wives will submit yourself to your own husbands, that those who don't obey the word will be won as they behold your manner of life. Just how badly do you want that in your home? As the days of heaven on earth, would you like to have heaven on earth in your home? So be it. So be it. Amen. Close your Bibles and bow your heads with me for just a moment. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, make us to understand and to know the truth about who we are, what we are, who you are, and how we relate to you especially in the home, the proving ground. Give us grace there first. Let it be there. And Lord, these young folks that are coming of age, the time in their life when young women and young men marry, let them ponder this subject deeply and know that whoever marries them will be marrying somebody who has a head start on making a home the kind of home it should be and a happy and contented husband like he should be. You do that work, Lord, we can't. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.